Hi everyone, welcome to our online service. It's great to have you joining again. I trust that you'll be encouraged as we read and study God's Word together today. I just want to begin with a reading from Psalm 33, just to remind us who the Lord is that we've come to worship. So Psalm 33, verses 6 to 11. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Well, let's uh, come before the Lord in prayer. Let's uh, commit our time to him. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you because you are the creator of all things. As we're reminded here, it was by your word that you created all things. And we acknowledge you as our creator, the one who rules over us, the one who owns us. And Father, as we come to worship you today, we pray that you would enable us to remember and to see that you are our creator. Father, help us to uh, come before you with humility, uh, to listen to your word with fear and trembling, because it is you who are speaking. Father, we pray that you'd give us an attitude of reverence and awe as we hear your word. We pray that you would teach us, that you would shape us by it, We ask that the work of your spirit would be advanced in our lives today, that your son would be glorified uh, in the preaching of your word and in the hearing of your word and in the transformation that takes place as your spirit molds us more and more into the likeness of your son. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, today we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, For the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Esther. Uh, The book of Esther is the last uh, narrative uh, history book, I guess you could say, of the Old Testament. And uh, one of the most surprising things about the book of Esther is that the name of God is not mentioned once in the entire book. In fact, not only is God not mentioned, but there's no reference to miracles, uh, there's no prophets, there's no temple or sacrifices. In fact, there's not even a direct mention of prayer. Uh, But that doesn't mean that God is absent from this story. So usually uh, your absence from the place where you would expect it to be is the very thing that draws people's attention to you. I know that's certainly the case for me. If I miss a presbytery meeting, it seems as though I end up with more jobs when I miss a meeting than when I attend. Uh, It's certainly a case of being conspicuous by your absence, as we might say. And that's certainly the case with... Uh, the book of Esther. God is clearly conspicuous by his non-mention. And the reason for that is this book describes a very important part of the history of his covenant people, the Israelites. And uh, because it describes God's covenant people, that encourages us to look for his hand, his invisible hand in all of the twists and turns of this extraordinary uh, story. Well, today we're looking at chapters 1 to 2. This is the opening section of the book of Esther. It it sets the scene for the main part of the story, which will come later. 
Um, but today we're just going to read the first 12 verses of chapter 1. And uh, we'll look at all of uh, chapters 1 and 2 in the sermon. So let's read uh, Esther chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. This is the Word of God. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. This is the word of God. The book of Esther is a very practical book for us today, mainly because it describes a time when God's people were scattered throughout a society that had values and opinions that were completely at odds uh, with theirs. And so how were God's people to survive? And see, that's essentially the challenge that we face today in our society. Our society is one in which uh, is becoming increasingly dominated by beliefs and values that are intolerant of the Christian faith. And so how are we supposed to survive? I mean, are we to change our beliefs so that we fit in a little better? Or are we to retreat into the shadows and only practice our faith in private? Or are we to go on the offensive, you know, stage protests, win back some ground? And what is to be our attitude toward our society and toward all of these changes? Are we supposed to be afraid of these changes? Are we to be scared of opposition and perhaps even persecution sometime in the future? And of course, where is God in all of this? We might ask, you know, God is invisible. We can't see him. And sometimes we wonder Perhaps he could do a little more to make our society an easier place to live in. So the question is, how do you follow an invisible God in a hostile world? 
And see, that is the question that the book of Esther deals with. A hidden God in a hostile world. How do you follow such a God as this? Well, the opening section of Esther, chapters 1 to 2, it begins to answer that question of how to follow a hidden God in a hostile world. And it does it by showing us three things. The opening section shows us a picture of power in the world empire. It shows us a picture of weakness and it shows us a hidden purpose in all of it. So let's have a look at those three things. First, it begins with a picture of what seems like inescapable power in the world empire. And so that's in chapter one. So we're in the Persian Empire in the fifth century before Christ. And King Xerxes was ruler. And we're told in verse one that he ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. So that's a huge chunk of the world. I mean, if you look at a map of the world, it takes up this much space on on the map. And so there was no one in the whole world more powerful at this time than King Xerxes. In his empire, it was virtually impossible to escape his rule. It's inescapable power. And in verses 2 to 8, we get a portrait not only of his power, but of his magnificence. You see, Xerxes knew how to throw a party. And we're told that for six whole months, he put on this incredible extravaganza for all of the bigwigs uh, in his empire. Verse 4 says it was to display the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of his glory and majesty. And as it's described, it's almost like you can imagine the camera panning the scene. And everywhere you look is just eye-watering, over-the-top luxury. I mean, even the camera pans down to look at the floor that you're walking on and you suddenly realize this is a mosaic of precious gems. It's just incredible. And to be a guest in this party was something else because of all the things that, that you could see and, and, and do, the thing that the writer especially emphasizes is that you had full access to the king's personal wine cellar. It's just incredible. Just being there, being around this extravagant king, it works in your favor as all the perks begin to flow. And that, of course, seems to be a ploy uh, for him to secure your loyalty to the world empire. And so the opening scene sets up the, the glory and the power of this mighty king who, who rules over the world empire. And his rule, it would seem, is invincible. Well, almost. Because verse 9 tells us that he has a wife, Queen Vashti, uh, who we're told was also giving a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. And so you can imagine the scene, the women are in one area, the men are in another area, and the men have been drinking for seven days straight uh, in this banquet, which is a pretty scary prospect given that this is the, the world power. They're all together and they're pretty much out of control. And it's, it's even more scary when the king has had one too many uh, and things do spiral out of control because, you know, after he's been impressing all of his um, officials and things with, with the vast wealth, you know, it took six months to get through it all. But after showing all that stuff, all these great possessions, he finally decides, hang on, there's one more possession that he'd like to show off before them. And so he sends... Uh, no fewer than seven eunuchs to fetch the queen 
uh, to parade her around in front of this huge crowd of drunken men. And uh, this great idea of the king, well, it dramatically backfires because verse 12 says that Vashti refused. Now, in our egalitarian culture, that's exactly what we would expect. I mean, what woman would want to be paraded around like that? What woman would want to be objectified in front of this huge crowd? Uh, But you see, in the Persian Empire, this was the most awkward thing that could happen. I mean, the writer must have been laughing his head off as he recorded this event because this is the great Xerxes who controls 127 provinces all the way from India to Kush, and yet he can't even control his wife. Instead, he's left red-faced and in a rage. Now, that's where we got up to in our reading, but let's keep going. Uh, From verse uh, 13... Uh, Verse 13 to 15, he does something that turns out to be a pattern in his life. He asks for advice. See, strangely, the one with all of the power in the story of Esther can never make a single decision for himself. And in this case, he calls together a little conference of his top lawyers to work out a solution of what must be done with Queen Vashti. Now, for the lawyers, the main problem that they can see is that the king has lost face. And that's a a very big deal in the Persian Empire. It's all about appearances. And so the king can't look bad in front of others. And so one of them named Memucan, verse 16, he basically says, no, 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 don't worry about this king. This is not a personal problem for you. This is a worldwide problem. Because of Vashti's actions, women everywhere are going to be rising up and disrespecting their husbands. He says the whole empire is virtually on the the, the verge of disorder. And so what do they do? Well, they make it a law that Vashti cannot do the very thing that she refused to do, which is a little bit strange. And not only that, but they, they take this law and they circulate it throughout the entire empire, telling everyone what Vashti did. And uh, the chapter ends by dispatches going throughout the whole empire, proclaiming that every man should be ruler of his own household. Now talk about shoot yourself in the foot. Because, you know, the lawyers wanted to save face for the king, but all that they've essentially done is now told everyone that the king can't control his wife. Uh, And now every husband is commanded to do the very thing that the king himself couldn't do. And were they really going to enforce that law? I mean, can you imagine the police going, trying to enforce that every man must be ruler of his own household? It wouldn't even work. I mean, do, do they really want every husband acting like self-centered, demanding jerks, just like King Xerxes? Is that what they want in the empire? See, the writer is clearly poking fun at this ruler. King Xerxes, he may have all the power in this empire, But it's like putting a machine gun into the hands of a chimpanzee. He just never know what he's going to do with it. And so we have here a portrait of power in the world empire. And this really could be any world empire. It could be the one that we live in today. Because on the one hand, the world empire, it's an impressive and desirable place to be. You know, in the world empire, appearances are everything. Virtue is measured by how powerful you are, how much luxury you enjoy, how good you look. And it's easy even for us today to get sucked in and to embrace the very principles on which the world empire is built. You know, luxury, pleasure, appearance, power, 
success. But this opening chapter of Esther, it actually gives us a look at it from the inside. And when you see it from the inside, you realize that it's a lot less organized and a lot less powerful than we might have been led to believe. And it's not as desirable as we might have been led to believe either. See, those closest to the center know that it's far more dysfunctional than we could have imagined. And so rather than getting sucked in into its principles, or rather than being frightened of its power, the opening chapter of Esther actually encourages us to step back and have a bit of a laugh at the emptiness of the world's values. It's all a bit of a joke. Well, if chapter one was a portrait of power in the world empire, then chapter two is the complete contrast. Uh, Chapter two, verses one to 18, we have here a portrait of weakness, weakness in the world empire. So verse one, it tells us that later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Now that sounds like regret, but it's too late now. He can't take her back now that he's told the whole world that he's dumped her. Uh, that would be to lose face. And so as usual, there's always someone around to advise this uh, indecisive leader. And the advice this time is pretty much just cheer up, old chap. Let's have a Miss Persia competition and find you a new and better wife. And better, of course, uh, means more compliant, uh, not like Vashti. And so the competition begins. But it's not a competition that women could enter into by choice. It was really a case of if you were good looking, you were in. And too bad if you had plans for your own life. Uh, You didn't have any choice in this. And the worst part about this, the worst part about the, the way that these women were rounded up and put into this competition is that essentially it was a life sentence. Uh, These women became the king's possessions whether they won this competition or not. Because after the one night stand with the king, which is essentially what the competition was really about, after that one night stand with the king, these women were then transferred to the concubine section of uh, the king to be used whenever he felt like it. So these women had no rights of their own. Uh, They merely existed for the benefit of the one in power And by the way, it wasn't just women who had no say with their bodies, but the eunuchs had no say about that either. And that's the way it is in the world empire. The weak merely exist for the benefit of the strong. But in the midst of this all-consuming empire where the weak are exploited by the powerful, we read about the weakest of the weak. So verse 5, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. So here's our first connection to the rest of the Bible. This story concerns the Israelites, uh, the people of God. And we're told here about this man named Mordecai. We're given a little um, bit of his ancestry, which will become important later on in the story. Uh, But for now, the important detail is that Mordecai is an exile, if you look there in verse 6. So an exile, that that actually indicates that he self-identifies not with the Persian Empire in which he lives, but he self-identifies with the people of God. And that's just like um, believers today. 
you know, believers live in the world, but we're not of the world. Uh, just like the New Testament describes us as being aliens and strangers, exiles in the world. Well, that's how Mordecai felt. He didn't really belong. Uh, he was an outsider in the midst of this powerful empire. But we're also told in verse 7 that Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So here's another picture of weakness. Not only was Esther an exile, but she was an orphan, which meant she had no status in the world. Uh, and notice how this young girl has two names. She has the Hebrew name, Hadassah, and she has a Persian name, Esther. And so right from the outset, it's, it's almost like there's a little tension set up. Uh, who will she identify with? Will this young girl identify with the people of God? Or will she just be assimilated into the world empire? And uh, this tension it will become very important later on in the story. But for now, here we have a picture of the weakest, the most vulnerable ones in this uh, powerful empire. However, Esther does have something uh, that the world does value very highly. She has good looks. Notice it said in verse 7, she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And so whether she liked it or not, she was snatched up into this competition and quickly became a leading contestant. Now, we're not told here what Esther thought about that. You know, was she upset? Was she devastated? Or was she excited? We don't know. We're not told. But what we are told in verse 10 is that Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now, what's implied there in verse 10? It gives you a little bit of a hint that it's living in the world empire is not actually a safe place to be for one of God's people. And it's like that for believers today. I mean, to publicly identify yourself as a Christian, certainly not going to win you any favor with the world or any popularity. Uh, in fact, in some parts of the world, to uh, reveal your identity in Christ is actually a death sentence. And for Esther, she is forbidden by Mordecai to reveal her identity as an Israelite. And again, the writer doesn't enter into whether that was the right thing to do or not. We'll have to see how that plays out later on. Um, but for now, that's what Esther does. And after 12 months of beauty treatments, uh, Esther finally has her night with the king. And we're told in verse 17 that the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, what are we supposed to make of that? Are we meant to be cheering at this point or are we meant to be very worried? Uh, is this a win for the believers, you know, Esther being a queen? Well, we need to remember that queen in the Persian Empire is not a position of power and influence. I mean, think about what happened to Queen Vashti when she made a stand. And so Esther is still quite vulnerable. She's still stuck in a system where she can only do what the king decides. And for now, Esther can only survive by blending in, by keeping her identity a secret. But here she is right at the center of the world empire. 
and we stand back and wonder where is all of this really going and so we've seen a portrait of power in the world empire we've seen a portrait of weakness the third thing we see in this passage though is a hint of a hidden purpose in all of it and that's at the end of chapter 2 at the end of chapter 2 we have this little section um, about Mordecai and uh, we read there in verse 21 that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate now I used to think that sitting at the gate when you read about that in the Bible it just meant that he liked to sit out on the street you know at the property gate kind of watching the cars go by or something Um, but it turns out that sitting at the king's gate was actually meant that he was a civil servant of some kind Uh, the king's gate was actually the law court of the land and so it turns out that Mordecai works for the government and while he's at the law court one day he hears of an assassination plot uh, against King Xerxes and Mordecai even though he doesn't truly belong to the empire he's still loyal to the king and so he tells Esther about this assassination plot and Esther in turn reports that to the king giving credit to Mordecai Uh, it's looked into the culprits are caught Um, Mordecai has become the king's savior it's even recorded in the royal records that he had saved the king and usually kings made a huge public spectacle of rewarding people who showed great loyalty like Mordecai did but on this occasion for some reason that we're not told it was overlooked and it was all forgotten about and so the chapter ends with Esther a Jew as queen of the Persian Empire and Mordecai another Jew as savior of the king but just so happens to be forgotten about and the way it's recorded it's just like you would encounter today you know powerful people doing power like doing whatever they like weak people towing the line there's no miracles in this story you know the Red Sea didn't part for Esther to become Queen she just happened to have a pretty face Uh, Mordecai didn't get a vision from heaven or a dream at night or anything like that in order to uncover the assassination plot he just happened to be in the right place at the right time and yet by the end of the book we'll actually look back on these two events and realize that they were absolutely pivotal for the salvation of God's people and even for our salvation today this shows us that there's always something bigger going on behind the scenes that God is working out solutions to problems even before we realize that they exist this shows us that in every situation and in every circumstance there's an invisible hand working out his purposes so that despite the weakness of God's people despite their vulnerability and their inability to do anything despite all of that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him now we probably wouldn't know about this invisible hand if we only had the book of Esther but the book of Esther is within the Bible and in that wider context we learn something of the way that God works in the world and when we know something about the way God works and we read the book of Esther in light of that all of a sudden we see God's fingerprints on every little detail in the story and this is actually what we call the doctrine of God's providence Uh, God's providence God's providence it refers to his governing of the world you know God governs all creatures all actions 
and all events according to his purpose. That's the doctrine of God's providence. And it reminds us that God doesn't just control the big events of the world. He controls every little detail, every detail that makes up every event. God controls it all. And, uh, you know, for us, it might seem like um, uh, our lives in, in this society today are really just at the mercy of those who visibly hold all the power. And yet we're reminded here that behind the scenes is the hidden hand of God who, who governs all things according to a far bigger purpose than we can ever see right in front of us. And by, the book of, and by the end of the book of Esther, we'll actually see what that bigger purpose is. But for now, we just need to let this sink in, that life in the world empire does not ultimately rest in the decisions and actions of human leaders. And that's a message that we especially need to hear today. For example, sometimes Christians can wonder in this pandemic that maybe the government's up to something. You know, maybe they're scheming, trying to squeeze the church out of society. And that's unlikely, but even if that was the case, does that mean that God is losing? You know, is God losing in this? Can human leaders really do anything other than what he has already decided beforehand? See, the opening of the book of Esther invites us to rethink our fear of those who hold, who visibly hold power. It even encourages us to laugh at those who think they have all the power. And in this way, the book of Esther reminds us of the second psalm that, descri that describes God himself laughing. You know, God laughs uh, at the rulers of, the, of this world who plot against his kingdom. He laughs because all of their plotting is ultimately in vain. His purposes stand. As he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now, who is that king? It's the one who came in weakness, not in power. It's the one who was despised and rejected and crucified by the world empire of his time. And yet it's through the foolishness of the cross that God chose to shame the strong. It's through the foolishness of the cross that he chose to turn the wisdom of the world on its head. Because it's through the cross of Jesus that his kingdom is established throughout the entire earth and no one can stand in his way see the book of esther encourages us to see the emptiness of all the world's values it encourages us to stop living in fear of the world's power it reminds us that god is active that he is in control that he is building his kingdom even when he's nowhere to be seen you can trust him he is the hidden God, but he is the God who is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the one who rules over all. You are our great king, and we praise you for your power and your sovereignty. We praise you that you do, you do work all things together for the good of those who love you. But Father, we confess that we so easily forget this. Uh, we acknowledge that we are so easily distressed over the things uh, that we see in our world and in our society, we forget that you are in control and that your purposes of establishing your kingdom still stand. Father, we confess that we're so easily distracted and constantly diverted from your ways. 
Uh, we're quick to fall back into the pattern of this world. We often find the empty pursuits of pleasure, luxury and appearance to be more appealing to our hearts than your kingdom and your glory. And we tend to think more about our own safety and comfort and our own financial profit than we do of laying our lives down uh, for your sake and for your kingdom. Lord, we confess that we're eager to look good in the eyes of the world and slow to consider your 